This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Gabby. And I'm Rob. And this is Dark Origins Podcast, a podcast where I tell Rob about the inspirations behind all mediums of art. So movies, TV shows, books, etc., and sometimes we talk about times where life imitates art. Yeah, so what's tonight's episode about? Today or tonight we're going to be talking about the case of Cindy James and there isn't a piece of art that this is based on or that inspired anything in real life. Well, that's not totally true, right? Because they have covered this on what unsolved mysteries. It's also been covered on other documentaries. It's been covered on things. That is very true. So I guess I I do technically count documentaries and things like that as pieces of art because they're, even though, you know, you're covering something that has happened, there is a creative process to it. So yeah, I agree. Yes. So, so like you didn't tell me anything about this, but you did tell me before we started that you're just kind of particularly drawn to this one. Yes. It just, is really scary to me and it's very baffling. Okay. Well, if it made it to, I hate unsolved mysteries. I, you know, I hate that show and I only hate it because I want to know what happens. I know. Right. And it, I, it, it upsets me when there's not an end and I'm upset with you right now because it's late and this, I know this is going to be a disturbing story and I'm not going to know the end, but, Carry on. There is technically an end. It's just what the fuck happened is that's, the question. That's not an end. So Okay. That's not an end. So, <laughs> like I said, this is one of the most terrifying cases I've ever heard of. Great. And it's the case of Cindy James. All right. Cindy was born in Oliver, British Columbia, Canada on June 12th, 1944 to Otto and Matilda Hack. 
She was one of six children who seemed to have a pretty typical upbringing. As Cindy entered adulthood, she decided to enroll in nursing school, and a few years later, as a student nurse, she met Dr. Roy Makepeace, and they quickly fell in love. He was 18 years older than her, but it worked for them at the time, and they got married a year after meeting. Cindy worked as a pediatric nurse for 12 years at Vancouver General Hospital. In April 1975, Cindy was hired as team coordinator at a children's psychiatric center called Blenheim House. She gained the respect of all of her colleagues and was known to be amazing at her job. Like, that's what everyone said, just that she was a very, very good nurse, very good at what she did. Meanwhile, Cindy and Dr. Makepeace had grown apart, so things are going great at work, but her home life is starting to break down a little bit. They ended up deciding to get a divorce, and apparently part of the problem was partially due to the fact that Cindy had lost her passion for sailing, and that's something that the couple had bonded over in the past, and she had started to isolate and spend most of her time off of work in her garden. So this just allowed them to grow apart to the point that they got a divorce. Hmm. So for the first time in her adult life, she was living alone. Four months into this new experience of living by herself and two months after her divorce proceedings were officially finalized, Cindy started to feel uneasy. She felt as though someone was creeping around her house and then she started getting phone calls. The first came on October 7th, 1982. The contents of the calls varied. Sometimes the individual on the other end would speak, oftentimes using different voices, while other times they would remain silent. The calls often had sexual and or violent messages. And four days after the first call came and she had continued to receive a series of calls with even more threatening messages, Cindy reported them to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It seems pretty clear that the stalker was watching her because he knew well we assume it's a he just based on the fact that he has a deep voice for a lot of the messages he knew that she had called police and this escalated his behavior immediately he called her as soon as the police left and said you fucking bitch i'll get you and then the next day he called and said so you think calling the police will keep you safe you wait I've got my zipper open. I'm talking to my throbbing and Cindy immediately hung up so that she could not hear the end of that sentence. That's cringy. Yeah, and absolutely fucking terrifying and gross. Over the course of the next couple weeks, Cindy called to report multiple incidences of someone lurking around her house, smashing her porch lights, throwing a rock through her window, and even breaking into her house just to slash the pillow on her bed. A constable at the RCMP, Patrick McBride, was very sympathetic to Cindy. He really wanted to help her, and he began spending a lot of time with her. Eventually, the two entered into a relationship, and McBride moved in with Cindy. He believed that the stalker was Cindy's ex-husband, Dr. Makepeace, but Cindy was unsure. She wasn't sure if he was capable of tormenting her like this, but she had admitted that he was abusive during their marriage. Dr. Makepeace himself actually admitted to some of the abuse, but he tried to downplay it. He said he only slapped her twice throughout their marriage. Look, it was just a couple times. Yeah, so... Come on, guy. Obviously, any slap is 
too much and abusive. And we all know that there is a lot more that goes on around before the the violence. Right. Before, that during, is and after. Also abusive. Right. Yes. Before, during, and, and just after. Just downplaying it like that is abusive. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, exactly. Yes. So McBride tells Cindy that he will move in with her for like two weeks to kind of help her feel safe, see if they can maybe catch the guy. And shortly after he he does, he sees someone sitting in the alley behind Cindy's house. So he approaches and he realizes that it's Dr. Makepeace, her ex-husband. Huh. He also had two guns in his possession. So... McBride asks him what he's doing, and Dr. Makepeace claimed that he was keeping a lookout because he heard about the stalking and he was worried. So that does sort of make sense. Yes, I agree. I mean, I don't know why he got two guns, but I mean, I guess always be prepared. Maybe he was a Boy Scout. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there could, I guess, be a number of reasons why he brought two guns but I think like you said it does kind of make sense you know I'm sure he still cares about her it's plausible at this point yeah. it's still plausible exactly but once McBride tells him hey I've got this you don't have to do this you know I'm gonna watch out right he leaves okay soon McBride starts getting calls while he was staying with Cindy The other end always remained silent, but McBride theorized the calls may have been placed from an airport terminal because he could hear a PA system in the background saying, like, your flight leaves, like... I mean, he never heard, like... Sorry, that's Arthur barking in the background. He Hmm. never heard what the actual words were saying, but just the sound of it, it sounded to him like it was a PA system at an airport. Later on, they do trace the calls... Looking back, it says the calls were chased were traced to a Richmond exchange, but I don't know what that means. So, yeah, maybe there's an airport in Richmond, but maybe there's not, and we just don't have that information. Yeah, yeah. But I just wanted to put that out there because we know that. I just don't know what that is, and I've looked and I can't figure it out. Okay. So McBride reached out to a private investigator he was friends with named Ozzy Caban to get help setting up a security system in Cindy's house. He also provided a portable panic button that would alert authorities whenever she pressed it and a two-way radio in case her stalker caught her phone lines. Cindy was known to carry the panic button with her at all times after this. So kind of like a, um, with the help I've fallen and I can't get up. Yeah, kind of like thing. a little life alert. Yeah. So at this point, her stalker starts leaving notes and pictures on her car. One note had a picture of a corpse on it, and another said Merry Christmas with a photo of a woman whose throat had been cut. Jesus. Yeah. The first time Cindy was physically attacked by her stalker was January 27th, 1983. So this is one year after? Yep. Just, yep. So she's been enduring this for a year. Did yes. I catch that right? Yes. It happened in, what did you say, February well, of 82? No, I guess, it, no, it hasn't been a year. It's been uh, like, it, so the first call she gets on October 7th, 1982. Oh, October. And then 
the first time that she's physically attacked is January 27th, 1983. That's that's Okay, crazy. so I was totally off. That's like only a few months, but still that's That's even scarier to me because it escalates so quickly. Well, right, but it's still a few months. Like I I'm not sure what's worse, right? Like I feel like if someone's going to be like real crazy like that, they would like call you a couple times and then act. Right. But this dude, even, even from October to January, that's a decent amount of time. Oh yeah. That's patience. Yeah. I mean, this person is trying to torment her. That's patience, control, calculated insanity. Yeah. Yep. That's terrifying. Especially if it's not her ex-husband. Yeah. Right. Because who is it? She like, she has no clue at all. Could be anyone in her life. Could be anyone that she doesn't know. Just watching her from the shadows. It's absolutely Could be somebody she knows or someone she doesn't know. Yeah. That's, that's freaky. So on the night of January 27th, she was supposed to be meeting with her friends, Agnes and Tom Woodcock, but she wasn't answering the door when they were knocking. Agnes heard a noise on the side of the house and she ran over to find Cindy laying unconscious with black nylon stockings wrapped tightly around her neck. What? Yeah. She had the life alert though. She didn't press it at that time. So yeah. Okay. We'll continue on. Maybe we'll find out why. So when she wakes up from being unconscious, she tells Agnes that she'd been going to the garage to grab a box when she felt someone grab her from behind. Mm -hmm. He pulled her into the garage where another man was waiting and the two began to strangle her. So there's two. That's what she says in um, in this instance. She claimed that one of the men inserted a knife into inside of her while threatening to hurt her mother and sister if she told police. At the hospital, doctors were unable to find any evidence of sexual assault. Police started questioning Cindy's experiences when evidence seemed to contradict what she had told them. The detectives noted that none of the boxes were knocked over, which you would expect if a violent fight had just occurred moments earlier, and there was a chair sitting in the middle of the garage near a beam on the ceiling, which prompted officers to investigate whether Cindy may have actually tried to take her own life. Uh-huh. And they urged her to see a psychiatrist, but she was very hesitant. So that's the story that I've gathered from certain sources. Mm-hmm. While other sources say that she told Agnes when she woke up that that a man grabbed her from behind in her garage, but Agnes actually found her slumped in her basement stairwell, not the side of her house. And then after, you know, evidence contradicts what she's saying and they have her take two lie detector tests, which she does not pass. She comes clean, I guess. And, She says, okay, yes, that's not what happened. What happened is a man came to my back door and I thought it was McBride, the guy that she was dating at the time. Yeah. And when she went to go open the door, the man cut her hand with a knife, grabbed her from behind and took her to the garage where there was another man. 
She said they threatened to cut her eyes and breast. And if she didn't stay quiet, they were going to come back. And they made threatening remarks with sexual overtones about her sister. Okay, so she was lying to protect her sister? That's basically what it sounds like she's saying, yes. Okay. So So this is getting weird already. Yeah, yes. We have no idea what the hell's going on at this point. No, (laughs) no. Yeah, because we don't even know now. We don't even know if the stalker exists. Right, exactly. Obviously terrified, Cindy decided to move to a new house. Terrified or nuts. Yeah. And I really hate questioning I know. A, a potential victim here. Yeah. I dislike that. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, is, you know, um, if this is stemming from mental illness and she's the one doing it, does she know that she is? Or does she have some sort of, you know, amnesia after it happens where she forgets that she's the one that's done she's it? She's just got complete disassociative identity, identity disorder. disorder. Yeah. It happens. So it's, it's a, this is why it, this is such a strange, strange case. And but her husband never reported anything like that before, right? No, not when they were together. No. And they have only been apart for a few months. So this would be a complete break from reality, a very rapid pace. Yes. Out of nowhere. Yeah, okay. exactly. So that's unlikely. So obviously terrified, Cindy decided to to move to a new house, but it didn't take more than a week for a threatening letter to find its way to her. So this has to be someone that knows her. It seems like it, or they are just very good at stalking her. Or it's her. Yes. But the thing is, is we're going to see evidence that... Well, don't tell me now. Okay. Okay. I want the, I want my mind to be blown as we go. Okay. The letter written in letters cut out from newspapers and magazines said, run rabbit run. I'll show you how fucking good I am soon. Bang, bang. You're dead. So this is like old school ransom letter style. Yes. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah, that's creepy. Her ex-husband had started coming back around at this point, apparently wanting to get back together. As a romantic gesture, he gifted her a trip to Indonesia. And, of course, her stalker noticed her absence. So he sent her a letter once she got back that said, Welcome back, death, blood, hate, etc. Like, that's what it said. What? <laughs> it's the etc. that really gets yeah, me. Etc. that doesn't. Wow, okay. So, desperate for help and feeling like the police were against her, Because, you know, they had questioned her the last time and she's feeling like they don't believe me. They don't. She reached out to the private investigator who helped her set up the security system. Mm -hmm. And she inquired about hiring him. Remember, his name is Ozzy Caban. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He believed Cindy and he really advocated for her. So in October of 1983, trigger warning for animal abuse. I would just skip forward like 15 seconds in five, four, three. Two, one, she found three dead cats in her backyard with rope around their neck. A few months after this incident, Caban heard noises coming from the two-way radio, so he rushed to her house because he's the one who had the other radio. Yeah. He found a horrific scene when he entered. 
On her living room floor, Cindy lay unconscious with black nylon stockings wrapped tightly around her neck and a note stabbed to her hand with a paring knife. The note read, Now you must die, cunt. She awoke for a couple minutes and told Caban that she saw a man walk through the gate at her house and then she was hit on the side of her head with a piece of wood. She remembered being pinned to the floor and having a needle shoved into her arm. Did you say she pressed the button? No, she did not press the button. She used the two-way radio. I missed that, okay. Yeah, so that's how he, because he hears these weird noises coming through the two-way radio. So that's why he goes there. Okay, I guess I missed that. She remembered being pinned to the floor and having a needle shoved into her arm, and then everything went black. Mm -hmm. Police, again, were suspicious of her claims. The main issue was that her door was locked and deadbolted, and there was no sign of forced entry anywhere else in the house. My question with this, though, is how do they know that for sure? Because Ozzy Caban had to come in somehow. So did he not come in through the front door? Like, how did he come in and how do they? Right. Does he have a key? If he does, did he lock the door when he got there? If um, the person did this, did that person take a key? Yeah. like And then lock it. Yeah. Yeah. And now he has carte blanche. Right, exactly. So I I just don't feel like that is, in this case, necessarily evidence that, you know, she for sure did this. Yeah, it doesn't even make any sense because Ozzy got in the house, period. Yeah, yeah. Furthermore, she did have a needle mark on her. So that was true. Was there a hypodermic needle in the house? Not that they found. Yeah. Would Ozzy take it? Well, I'm not sure how well they searched her house, but they didn't find one near her. It's pretty hard to shoot yourself up with something that's going to knock you out and then hide it. Of course, unless it doesn't knock you out, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it's also hard to act super groggy for a minute. That would be real. That's really tough to sell that. Yeah, it is. But she could have also, you know, tied the thing around her neck and allowed that to make her pass out. But that's taking a huge risk if you do that, that you might die. So I don't know. All kinds of risks going on here. Who knows? Yeah. There's reasonable doubt all over the place, though. The other thing, though, is that she didn't have any drugs in her system. So that was my next question. Was there a tox screen done? Yeah. So. A needle mark is there, but there's no drugs in her system. She also could have just hit herself with a sewing pin. Yeah. Sewing needle. She's also a nurse, so she very easily has access to needles. True. Some detectives even felt that they could see where someone had mopped up blood on her kitchen floor trying to erase evidence, which, you know, they're like, I've never before seen a crime scene where someone mop up blood when they left a body on the floor you know like of course people try to clean up crime scenes when they move a body but if the body's on the floor i mean unless there's like a footprint in the blood that's that's true that is very true i would yeah yeah actually i don't think so i'd be running so scared well that i think is what they were trying to say like most most perpetrators would just try to get out of the house as fast as possible yeah 
But yeah, I think you make a good point. There are many times where perpetrators do try to kind of clean up after themselves to get rid of evidence. Especially someone that's as calculated as this person would have to be. Yeah, yeah. Investigators administered a polygraph test, which Cindy passed, at least at the time, because later on, the person that gave her the polygraph test said that after going over it with another polygraph administrator, they were leaning more towards inconclusive rather than she passed. And they felt like it was maybe because they were very sympathetic to her that they had kind of been a little biased in analyzing it. Sure. At this point, Cindy is pretty sure that she knows the identity of her stalker. Her mind has changed. She has gone from being unsure that it could be her ex-husband to she feels very strongly that it's him. She thinks that Dr. Makepeace is responsible for everything that's happened. Strangely, Dr. Makepeace responded to police questioning with theories of his own because they go to him and ask him, you know, this stuff is going on. What do you think is happening? He told them that he believed the mafia was responsible for Cindy's stalking. And he reiterated his belief in this theory after he met with Cindy's father, who wore a wire during their conversation. So please have it on recording when they meet that he's trying to convince him that. Okay, so when you come up with some bullshit like the mafia's behind this one, now I'm starting to think it's the doc. Right. Like, this is why the whole thing is so fucking weird, because that is such a strange way to respond. Plus, that's like your name is Makepeace. That's like naming your hotel uh, Motel Paradise. Right. Like that is a shithole paradise hotel that costs $84 to stay there. It's on eight mile. And, you know, it's, you you know, you can buy an eight ball there. It's, you know, it's a shithole. Yeah. Yeah. Makepeace. Bullshit. It's about make stalker. Make abuse, make dead woman. So, so, so Cindy's father requests the doctor make peace stay away from her. And he didn't say, he didn't respond to that with much at the moment, but he sent a six page letter to her dad afterwards, again, explaining his mafia theory. Was it, let me, let me ask a question. Was it written in magazine cutouts? (laughs) No, it wasn't. <laughs> okay, okay. So he actually wrote this one? Yes. Like, dude, the mafia, like, what the fuck? What kind of shit are you trying to say that you two are involved in? Right, that's the thing is, like, what, in, in people nowadays who theorize about this do theorize that maybe Dr. Makepeace did have mafia ties, maybe he was running drugs for them or something when he was sailing or alcohol or something. Well, I mean, we're not that far yet. So I want to hear why we think that I want you to keep going because if this dude is not just like caught red handed, because at this point, this dude is a hundred percent guilty in my mind, right? Like there is no way that he's not at fault here. Like I want to hear more and then we'll get to the theories later because I just need, I need to hear more. Okay. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Like, how can there be, how can there be any doubt cast at this point is, I just don't understand. A few months later, during the summer of 1984, Cindy called Caban to tell him that someone had broken into her house. Quick trigger warning again for 
very brief. Um, an animal gets scared and maybe was hurt, but it is okay for five seconds. He rushed over and found her dog, Heidi, shaking in the basement with rope around her neck. The dog had also been hurt, but she was ultimately okay. A message that read happy birthday and a bunch of sexually explicit pictures were sitting next to her dog. One more animal moment. The stalking continued and later that summer, a dead cat was found on the stairs inside Cindy's house. Another notable incident involved two men dressed as police officers who apparently ran away when Cindy radioed Caban. So they came up and knocked on her door and then as soon as she radioed him, they just took off. Meanwhile, the people around Cindy were receiving calls as well. At times, they received calls while Cindy was with them. So okay, they witnessed things while they were with Cindy that they didn't believe she could have done herself. For instance, her mother spent the night with her one night and woke up to Heidi barking. She walked to the living room and found Cindy frantically checking windows and doors to make sure they were all locked. Then the doorbell rang. This obviously drew their attention towards the front door, which is when they realized a window near it had been cracked. A couple weeks later, Cindy went missing while walking her dog Heidi in a park near her house. At this point, her and Ozzy had a system where she would call him before she left her house and then again when she got home. When she didn't call him back, Ozzy rushed to her house and he found it empty. He called police who went out looking for her. They found her around 12 a.m. at her neighbor's house trying to enter it in a semi-conscious state with black nylon stockings wrapped tightly around her neck. She was rushed to the hospital and as she awoke, she claimed she was walking Heidi in the park when a man and a woman with a green van kidnapped her. So kind of weird. It's kind of changing now. There's a man and there was also a woman there. The man pulled her in and stuck a needle in her arm. Strangely, a receptionist told detectives that a man called the hospital while Heidi was there and inquired about their security measures. Police later played a clip of Dr. Makepeace's voice for her, and she agreed that it did sound similar. So, just weird. I mean, let's, for a moment, step back. Who could be behind this if it's not Dr. Makepeace? The mafia. I mean, let's think about it. Now, we're laughing, right? Because that shit's funny. But, like, the stories you hear, right? Fictional stories, right? Like, these guys, like, they're organized. That's their whole their whole thing. They pull shit off like that. Like, that's what they do. They Or they get people that are down for shit like that, and they do it. So, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Cindy began hypnotherapy in October of 1984, hoping it may help her remember some important piece of information that could reveal the identity of her attacker. In one session, she claimed she witnessed a double murder, but she didn't want to talk about it any further. It wasn't until January of 1985 that she would bring it up again during hypnotherapy. She elaborated this time, alleging the murder occurred during her honeymoon with her ex-husband. They went on a sailing trip for their honeymoon, and at some point, he made a stop. He tied the boat up at a wharf on the Gulf Islands, but she wasn't sure of the exact location because she'd been sleeping below deck. She knew, though, that he planned to go look at a property on this land that he was getting off onto. She remained on the boat while he went to check it out until she heard a scream. She ran out, unsure unsure of where to go because she'd never visited this property before, but she came upon a log cabin and when she opened the door, she was greeted with a horrific scene. Two people lay on the floor, a man in his 30s and a woman in her 20s. 
standing above them with a bloody knife was her husband. Cindy turned and started sprinting away, but her husband pursued her. He caught up to her and grabbed her before violently shaking her and slapping her across the face. At this point, she blacked out. Later that night, she woke up on the bed in the cabin. In front of her was her husband chopping up the bodies with an axe and placing the body parts in a bag. Apparently, Dr. Makepeace took the time to rub some of the victim's blood on Cindy's face, and then Cindy claims they threw the bags overboard. Despite their wariness of Cindy's claims at this point, the RCMP took these accusations seriously. They wanted to do their due diligence, so they launched an investigation. Using the little bits of information that Cindy was able to recall, they tried to track down the cabin, but they were unsuccessful. In June of 1985, Cindy attempted to overdose on prescription medications. Thankfully, she survived and was committed to the psych unit at Lionsgate Hospital. She claimed that she didn't mean to take so many pills. Her father and brother were able to convince the hospital to release her five days into her stay because they told the doctors that she didn't need to be in a psych unit. She was just suffering from an extreme amount of anxiety due to the stalking situation. Not too long before this suicide attempt took place, Cindy had been asked to resign from Blenheim House, which is the place that she'd been working for a while. Mm -hmm. So speculatively, this may have pushed her over the edge and caused her to do, try to take her own life. Yeah, I think that's common among a lot of people when that happens, let alone someone under this amount of stress. Right, exactly. In July, police asked Cindy if they could record her while she confronted Dr. Makepeace about the murders, and she agreed. Because at this point, she still hasn't told him that she thinks he murdered two people in front of her. So she calls him, and she tells him that she remembered what he had done. At first, he was confused, but his confusion turned to anger pretty quickly. He denied all of her accusations and believed she was trying to get revenge on him for some reason. Police put surveillance on Cindy, Dr. Makepeace, and two other suspects who have never been publicly identified as soon as this phone call ended because they were hoping maybe it would make one of them do something crazy or something. Sure, yeah. But they stopped the surveillance after five days because nothing was happening. In early July, another note was sent to Cindy. It said, blood flowing freely and a pair of nylon stockings accompanied it. Not too long after, another package arrived. It contained cosmetics containers filled with rotten, raw meat from some type of small animal. Gross. Yeah. The next month, Cindy called the fire department thrice because of fires that were set in her house. It seemed like someone had set a bunch of newspaper on fire, so when they get there, that's what they see is just a bunch of little burnt pieces of newspaper. The third fire occurred in her basement around 3.15 a.m. when Cindy was apparently taking her dog for a walk. So detectives noted that the basement window was open, but the soot and dust hadn't been disturbed at all, leading them to believe nobody had actually gone through the window because, remember, I said it was set in her in the basement. So I think it, at the very least, say it was her that said it. I think she was trying to open the basement window to make it look like someone had come in through there, set the fire, and then left through there. But police are like, there's no way someone came in here. We would see... There would, there would be a disturbance in the dust and stuff. Mm, like the dust on the windowsill? Yeah. Yeah. There would be a trail. At this point, investigators are pretty certain Cindy was lighting the fires herself. One investigator who really felt that Cindy was responsible for all of her own torment was Carol Halliday. She felt that her male co-workers had been taken by Cindy's beauty, falling under her spell, and believing her lies. 
Halliday remarked they had been, quote unquote, conned by the histrionics of a pretty woman. That's quite a sentence. Yeah. Halliday sought help from a psychologist named Dr. Anthony Marcus. Dr. Marcus interviewed Cindy and analyzed the case files. He ultimately concluded that Cindy was suffering from dissociative identity disorder, and his theory was that the DID formed in response to trauma Cindy experienced in childhood. But apparently he never actually asked her about her life growing up, so he doesn't have any idea of, you know, if she had a traumatic childhood or not. He's just speculating or he's theorizing that that she did, and that's why she has DID. Cindy, meanwhile, decided it was time to move again. The new house that she moves to doesn't have any back alley, which she really appreciated because less of a place for someone to, or less places for someone to hide. She took other measures to conceal her identity as well, like painting her car, changing her phone number, and changing her last name to James. Of course, her stalker immediately found her again. Ten days after moving, Cindy was found laying in a ditch filled with water with nylon stockings wrapped tightly around her neck. She was dazed, wearing men's work boots that didn't belong to her, with a glove on only one of her hands. Cindy was taken to the hospital to be examined and treated for hypothermia, and medical professionals suspected she had been injected with tranquilizers. Were there drugs in her system this time? It doesn't say. It just says that they suspected that she had been injected with tranquilizers. Okay. Yeah. Damn it. I know. I know. Why? I know. You would it's think unsolved that. Unsolved mysteries bullshit. They every would time. do a full workup and they I don't know. They probably did and we just don't have access to the that, damn. That's true. That's very true. At this point, Agnes and Tom Woodcock, remember that's her friends. Oh, yeah. Have been spending the night with Cindy occasionally. See, now, th- th- these people are good people. Yes, they are. I'd be like, babe, no. I know. We're going to stay home. I know. So, you know, I well, I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, you know, we tend to be good friends. I, I don't know. I just. I would be uh, ter- terrified because that's very scary. Actually, yeah, because I would, hmm, I would, I'd probably bring her to our house. But then the stalker knows where you live now. So it's no, scary either I would, way. I would, I would rent a car, two cars, and then I would drive one of the rental cars to one random location in like a casino parking lot. <laughs> and then I would go to the casino in the second rental car. And I would, then I would, you know what I mean? I would do the switcheroo and then I would drive the second, the first rental car back to the house. See, that's how I would do it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I would do the switcheroo. Or we could all just go stay at the casino. Oh yeah. You just get a hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. Duh. You're a thinker. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So they're spending the night with her and Tom wakes up in the middle of the night because he hears Cindy rooting around her house. So he comes out into the living room and she tells him that she had just heard a noise. That's when they noticed a fire in the basement. Oh boy. They tried calling the fire department, but the phone line had been cut. Thankfully, Tom acted quick and ran to a neighbor's house to use their phone. On his way out the door, he spotted a man standing in the street, but the man ran away before he could chase him down. What? Yeah. After this, Cindy was feeling extremely depressed. A little defeated, maybe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is so strange. I go back and forth. I've gone back and forth eight times, I think, in this story. This is... I know. That's why it's so fucking weird. Okay, carry on. She wouldn't eat, and some of her statements contained concerning suicidal ideation. I get it. Yeah. Her long-term psychiatrist, who believed her allegations about her stalker, became worried that she might try to complete suicide, so he had her committed to a different psych unit than last time. This time, she went to St. Paul's Hospital and stayed for two weeks before being transferred to Riverview Hospital, where she stayed for 10 weeks. The psychiatrist there diagnosed her with anorexia and depression. This is what the psychiatrist wrote. This 41-year-old woman on initial assessment was very resistant. She would only answer in one-word responses. She refused to discuss a number of topics and would give no eye contact. On the second date, her mood was considerably elevated. She had completed the other test herself and was willing to talk. She seemed apprehensive as to how the test could be used. She maintained good eye contact except when discussing the terrorizing incidents She then would look down or cover her eyes and speak haltingly. She expressed upset and cried a great deal when relating these incidents. Patient kept asking if her responses to the items indicated she was crazy. Her IQ is well above average. This type of individual can be characterized as negativistic and conforming. They have unpredictable moods, pessimism, sullenness, vacillating with social agreement and friendliness. They tend to anticipate and precipitate disappointments through their obstructive and negative behavior. This type of person tends to be vulnerable to fears. So once she gets released from the hospital, she is able to start working again, thankfully, as she took a job at Richmond General Hospital. From the middle of 1987 to 1988, Cindy mostly experienced acts of vandalism and notes left for her. She would receive notes either at work or on her car Okay, so so okay, this has been many years. Yep. Now, I said something a few minutes ago about like maybe, you know, the mafia could put something together like that with like, you know, a bunch of different people torturing this woman or whatever. I don't think they're going to spend their resources torturing one woman. If, right. If they're going to if they if they're mad at somebody, they're just going to kill you. Exactly. Right? Or they're going to do something to make them money. Yeah, like that's this, what they care about. They don't care about like revenge in the sense bad. of like fucking with like a single woman. Like, yeah, they want money, and if they need to take revenge to scare other people into 
doing what they want. That's one thing. But dedicating right. six years to right. it's a business. It's yeah, not, this is like like sure like this. We're talking about them like we know them, but also it's a business. Yeah, like they're in this for making money. They're not doing this to like for fun. Right. I bet they are doing it for fun in some cases, but also, I mean, I go to work and have fun every day. Right. Mm-hmm. But I also go to work because it makes me money. Right. So within that time frame from 1987 to 1988, her alarm had gone off when a window on her back porch was broken. Light bulbs on her front porch had been loosened and windows were cut out using a glass cutter. And then for Dr. Makepeace, calls came to a crescendo as well. He had been bothered with them a few times before, but they had been coming more often and had become more threatening recently. At this point, Dr. Makepeace is incredibly wary of the RCMP since they had targeted him as the prime suspect in their investigation. So he gets these really scary messages on his answering machine. One message said, Cindy, dead meat soon. And the other said, more smack, more downers. Another grand after we waste the cunt. No more deal. Instead of giving the recordings to the RCMP since he was so wary of them, he gave them to his attorney. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the same thing. Yes, it is. Yes. So those calls came on October 11th, 1988. And 15 days later, Cindy was physically attacked again. She was hogtied, naked from the waist down, and had black nylon stockings wrapped around her neck. Desperate for leads, the RCMP contacted a mountain climber named Robert Chisnall, who was an expert in knot tying. They asked him to analyze the knots on the stockings to see what he thought. What? His analysis determined that it would be highly unlikely that Cindy would be able to tie the knots herself. Oh, that's a good idea. Okay, that's a good... Yeah, I got that. Yeah. Okay, because I was like, wait, what? Yeah. In January of 1989, Cindy allowed Richard Johnston, a man who sold Cindy her insurance policy, to move into her basement unit. Having another person living with her made her feel safe, and it seems like she trusted Richard. Yeah, but this guy's got to have balls of steel. I know. I know. Does he know? He knows, right? Yeah. Things stayed relatively quiet until April 8th, 1989, when Cindy's windshield had the phrase sleep well written in the settled dew. It was backwards so that it could be read by the driver once they enter the car. It's hard to write backwards. I know. The same day, a letter was left at the hospital that Cindy worked at. It said, soon, Cindy. An attempted break-in occurred on April 29th, leading detectives to utilize scent hounds to trace a scent from the house, but they weren't able to find one. They had slightly better luck on May 10th after scent hounds were brought out following another break-in. This time, they were able to track the scent of someone that went over Cindy's back fence. On May 25th, Cindy was supposed to play bridge with the Woodcocks. When they hadn't heard from her, they decided to stop by her house, probably worrying that she had been attacked again. Yeah. It was about 10 p.m. when they stopped by, and Cindy wasn't anywhere to be found. Her car wasn't in the driveway either, so they asked her downstairs tenant if he knew where she was. He told them that she had planned to go shopping earlier, but he didn't know where she was at the moment. This information was enough to get the Woodcocks going in the right direction. They knew that Cindy liked to shop at Blundell Shopping Center, so they drove by there, hoping to find her. It's 10 p.m. Yeah. Unfortunately, they didn't find Cindy, but they did find her car sitting in the middle of the parking lot. 
so they rushed to the Richmond RCMP station to make a missing persons report. Officers from the RCMP quickly showed up to the scene where her car was found to process it. Frighteningly, they found blood on the inside of the car and a streak of blood on the outside of the driver's side door. Oh my. She had groceries and a present for her friend's eight-year-old son sitting in the back of the car. Things from her wallet were found under the car, which was remarkable but confusing. They sent officers to her house to search it and everything looked totally normal there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, she was abducted from, presumably abducted from the mall. Yeah. Worried she might have drowned in a local river or in the Gulf of Georgia, the Coast Guard began searching all waterways that night. Police pieced her day together, hoping to find some insight. So they figured out she had picked up her paycheck from Richmond General Hospital, where she talked to a coworker who saw her. The coworker said that Cindy specifically told her that she hadn't experienced any attacks for a couple weeks and she seemed to be in a really good mood. She went to get a gift for her friend's son afterwards, a croquet set. That was what was found in her backseat. The strange thing was that detectives couldn't find a receipt for her groceries because they knew she went to the grocery store and they found the groceries in her backseat alongside the croquet set. The bags were filled with non-perishable food. So officers went to the Safeway and looked through all of the purchases made that day to see if they could find a sales total equal to the total of groceries that Cindy had in her car. Yeah. So they take all that food, scan it, you know, figure out how much it cost. They weren't able to find one. Police theorized that Cindy may have taken non-perishable items that she already had to stage the scene and make it seem like she had gone grocery shopping that day. Well, okay. Now, now I'm starting to think that, okay, um, uh, are these people going to like any lengths to just not believe this woman or, I mean, because there's blood inside the car, blood outside of the car and her stuff is under the car. There's no receipt. Hey, I'm going to go get a croquet set. And then there's a croquet set and it's all non-perishable foods. Right. Like that, I guess, I mean, because like I really want to believe her. Yeah. Detectives got the name of everyone who used the ATM machine 15 minutes before and 15 minutes after Cindy had. One woman that they interviewed recalled almost getting hit by a blonde woman who was driving into the parking lot. She said that she parked in the middle of it quite far from all the rest of the cars. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Another man said he saw a blonde woman walk diagonally across the parking lot until she got to her car, but neither witness saw anything else that seemed important or remarkable. Officers went to Dr. Makepeace's place, but he refused to let them in until his property manager verified that they truly were police officers. He was suspicious of them still since he had a poor relationship with the RCMP at this point, but he let them in. They informed him that his ex-wife had gone missing, and he responded saying, she's dead. She's dead. In their opinion, he seemed upset. Yeah. Like, he's like, oh, shit, she's dead. Yeah. I know it it finally happened. She's dead. Yeah. Yeah. He was able to account for his whereabouts the whole day, and it seemed to police that he was acting normal considering the circumstances. A few days after Cindy went missing, her downstairs roommate and the man who sold her her insurance policy, called police to inform them that someone called his office claiming to be Cindy's father and inquiring about her policy. 
The woman who answered his call started giving him some information until she remembered they weren't allowed to give out information over the phone, at which point she stopped and told the man he would have to come in. He never ended up coming in, and Cindy's father denied calling to ask about her insurance. Mm -hmm. On June 8th, 1989, a municipal paving worker named Gordon Starchuk was working in the backyard of an abandoned house when he stumbled upon Cindy's body. She had been hogtied with rope and had a stocking wrapped around her neck. Her jacket was off of her, but still near her. The house was located right at a busy intersection that usually got a lot of street traffic, so it was baffling to police that she hadn't been spotted until the 8th. The scene also had obscenities and derogatory remarks spray-painted all around it. On the residence's exterior fuel tank, police found graffiti and orange spray paint reading, some bitch died here. Jesus. Yeah. And I think um, some of this graffiti happened after her body had been found and moved. A line spray painted along the ground with the same orange paint ran from the fuel tank to the spot where her body lay encircling it. So it was like a little drawing of a dead person basically on the ground. Yeah, like the chalk outline. Yes, yes, exactly. And then inside the abandoned house, there was another spray-painted graffiti that read Devil. The scene was gruesome. The pathologist noted that Cindy's hands had been bound together so tightly that her fingers, one of them had been like scratched down to the bone. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Of course, they found a hole in her arm consistent with the needle poke, but there were no syringes or vials found anywhere near the scene. A forensic entomologist was asked to analyze the insect and larva activity around and on her body, and they determined that her body began decomposing in that yard as early as June 2nd, 1989. So six days before she was found. Yeah, six days before she was found, and... She went missing on May 25th. Oh, so there's some thought that she was she was kept alive prior? Yeah. An autopsy revealed Cindy's cause of death was a drug overdose due to the combination of high levels of morphine, diazepam, and fluorazepam. Interestingly, she had 10 times the lethal dose of morphine in her bloodstream. They looked at her stomach contents and they found that she had ingested 20 to 80 tablets of fluorazepam and multiple diazepam tablets. I guess the route of administration for the morphine couldn't be determined, although traces were found in her stomach. But doctors cautioned against taking that as evidence that she had ingested it because that can happen even if it's taken intravenously. So... Because this was the thing that I was thinking, like if she did this, you know, and her, there's no syringe or vial of morphine found near her. It's possible that she took a bunch of fluorazepam and diazepam. And then if it is true that the needle mark on her arm is where she injected morphine, then she could quickly inject the morphine and run to the spot that she's found, you know, like from wherever the fuck she did this at, at least far enough away. Maybe she threw the syringe in a sewer or something and then tied herself up in that spot until she and laid there until she 
you died have, from a drug overdose. You have moments from the time that blood hit, that hits your bloodstream. You can't tie your hands behind, you know, that tight. So I'm not saying it's likely. I'm saying this is when I was trying to think about how could she have possibly done it. That's what I was thinking. But then when I found out that she had 10 times the lethal dose of morphine in her bloodstream, it made it seem less likely to me because say she had like a lot of morphine, but not 10 times the lethal dose. Maybe that morphine alone wouldn't cause her to overdose. But when it interacts with the flurazepam and diazepam, it does cause her to overdose. So at that point, she would have a little bit of time because the route of administration for the other medications was ingesting it. So that would give her some time. She would be high from the morphine, but she could still, you know, get to the spot and then tie herself. But I mean, it's hard enough to hog tie yourself even when you're not high. So do you have some experience in hog tying yourself? No, but right. it seems I don't think like it's, it would be very hard. I don't think you could do it. I I don't know. It, plus, this expert not tire guy is like, no, you can't do that. Like, he's like, it's super duper unlikely that you could do that. And now she does have some experience from her sail, sailing days, right? Yeah. So maybe it's possible. But it might also be possible that she's just, one of my thoughts was that, you know, she was using drugs. And someone found her and she was, you know, she had committed suicide or she had overdone it, um, getting high or something. And then to make it all make sense, they tied her up. You know, I don't know. I really don't think it's the mafia that did it. I don't think it's the mafia either. But I also, that doesn't really make sense to me because A, why would you do that? And B. Maybe it was the doctor because he loved her. You would have to find her very quickly I feel like after she died in order to tie her up like that would you I mean I don't think I mean I don't think you would have like a super duper long time I mean I guess you know I don't know but you definitely would have to do it that day because you know she's going to go into rigor mortis and you're not going to be able to tie her up like that maybe there was a weird suicide pact maybe there was a something I mean who knows maybe there was just a murder and, you know, the other thing, too, is, like, where where would they have found her? And, like, why why did she go missing? It just seems like it, it just seems like someone, either her or someone else, set out to do this on purpose to me. Yeah, I'm saying maybe someone with her did it, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what my thought kind of was. Like, like, she was doing this, she was going to do it, and someone, maybe maybe that's another plausible thing, is that maybe the doctor did it with her. Like he was with her when she died and like helped her tie, like tie her up for some reason. Like she was going to commit suicide. I see. Okay. And he was just going to let her do it. Okay. Maybe that's one plausible thing. Yeah. Um, That's really weird, right? Like that's not cool, but it's something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this whole case is so confusing, you know? Because nothing in it makes sense. Right. Exactly. You think that, okay, yeah, okay. This kind of makes sense. I feel like, I feel like it is her doing it. And then you hear something else and you're like, wait, what the fuck? Never mind. I don't think it's her doing it. And then you hear something else and you're like. And then the last thing really threw me for a loop with her car in the, in the parking lot. What's really strange is the car in the parking lot. She's supposed to go play uh, bridge with her friends on the 25th of May. 
And she does presumably doesn't die until June 2nd. We don't know, but that is what the entomologist said that that but they, but they weren't. She wasn't. She wasn't found until June 8th. We know that. Yeah. And we know that there was a gap of time where, I mean, she very unlikely is very unlikely that she died on the 25th and sat in the summer heat until the 8th. And the entomologist was that far off. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I, I Real quick, I just want to clarify. I, I don't think the entomologist is saying that she didn't necess- didn't die until the June 2nd. I think the entomologist is saying she didn't start decomposing in that yard until June 2nd. So she, it's possible she could have died earlier, but her body was moved to that yard. Okay. So that's possible. But so, but we don't know when she died. So it doesn't, you know. They couldn't tell when she died? I wasn't able to find that information when they thought she died. Well, you know, we need to get this on CSI so we can make some sense out of this thing. I know. Can we get Judge Judy in here? I don't know. We need somebody to clarify some information. I know. This is why I don't watch that goddamn show. I know. I know. Now I'm going to be up all night thinking about this. So I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I'm going to be wondering about this. I know. It's insane. Thank you for doing this to me, Gabby. I know. It's so crazy. And all of our listeners. Um, I hope we get some feedback from our listeners on this one. I want to know what your theories are. Yeah, me too. I am very interested and curious. Darkoriginspod at gmail.com. And TikTok and I think Dark Dark Origins Podcast on Instagram. So investigators ultimately ruled Cindy's death an accident or suicide. Lots of people disagreed with this theory, especially her family and supporters like the Woodcocks and Ozzy Caban. Ozzy was able to see Cindy's body, and he noted she had lividity on her left side. The problem was that she had been laying on her right side. So this suggests that she had been killed elsewhere, kept in a cool place for a while, and then dumped in that yard. Right. It's safe to say that this case is so confusing and equally as scary and concerning. So a coroner's inquest was launched, and it ended up becoming the longest and most expensive in the history of British Columbia. I believe it. Dr. Makepeace was called to testify, and he had a lot to say. He claimed that her father was a strict authoritarian who physically abused Cindy as a child and that her brother had molested her. He also aired his grievances with the RCMP because he felt as though they unfairly targeted him and tried to frame him. Many of Cindy's friends testified in support of her, though. The Woodcocks recalled incidents that happened when Cindy was sitting right next to them, like I mentioned earlier, saying it would be impossible for her to break a porch light while she was sitting a foot away. Right. And they're all in the same room. Many of her coworkers testified that they saw bruises on Cindy when she was married to Dr. Makepeace, and they wholly believed that she was being abused by him. Yeah, like I said. But, of course... Along with Dr. Makepeace's testimony, he denied any involvement and he said that he believed it was Cindy who was responsible for everything that happened. He does, So he no longer thinks it's the mafia. Yeah, he no longer thinks it's the mafia. Now he, he thinks it's Cindy. Psychiatrist who interviewed or treated Cindy at many points of her life between 1982 and the time of her death were called to testify. Mm-hmm. They couldn't agree on a diagnosis for her. Some, like Dr. Marcus, the psychiatrist who worked with police, 
believed that she had DID and it all stemmed from, you know, a traumatic incident when she was a child. And he believed that she accidentally killed herself the last time because she went a little too far. He doesn't think that it was necessarily suicide, but that she was trying to, you know, continue to self-medicate, pretend to be her own stalker, basically. Oh, yeah. Other doctors thought she had borderline personality disorder and believed her goal was to get attention. Another doctor who treated Cindy after an attack testified that he had some reason to believe that she was responsible and that she was lying. One moment that gave him pause was when Cindy was in a quote-unquote coma. He said that he noticed her eyes fluttering, which made him wonder if this was the result of her own mental illness because it seemed like she was basically faking a coma being in a coma that's aggressive faking a coma would be so difficult i mean you have to be pretty committed i know but like why why would her eyelids be fluttering you know and also they the comas that that they're referring to didn't last an incredibly long time about eight hours or so i'm not sure exactly how long (laughs) but they I'm, i'm kidding but i mean they weren't like years long. Like they weren't like long comas. I mean, obviously, obviously we know that. Not, obviously. But I mean, even two days. Yeah. I'm assuming they were probably more like maybe a couple hours or something like that. Oh, a couple hours is, I mean, you can keep your eyes closed for a couple hours. Anybody can keep their eyes closed for a couple hours. But a couple days or something like that would be really difficult. And a real coma, I mean, you're talking a few days, a few, like a week. You know, I don't know. Once again, I'm not a medical doctor. I should just be quiet. Yeah, no, I I mean, yeah. Many of the investigators agreed that they thought she was lying. A lot of them felt that her stories seemed fake, basically. Um, She would go from a state of drowsiness to a state of alertness very quickly. You know, weird behavior like that where they thought she was just kind of putting on a show. Some doctors thought that this was the result of generalized anxiety disorder Others thought she just couldn't appropriately regulate her emotions. Others thought she had, you know, borderline personality and histrionic personality disorder. So there's a big mix of what they thought she had. But for the most part, a lot of the experts thought that she was doing it herself. And then some other evidence that kind of backs that up is the fact that Cindy's family found tons of prescription medications in her home. Yeah. Many of the same kinds that she was dosed with by her stalker. Her sister also found a glass cutter, a medical syringe kit, a urinary catheter, which I'm not really sure why that was. Well, you need one up, every but, now and again. You know, sometimes you just got to have one. Um, and saline solution, which I'm also not sure why that. Well, was that would up, be the, that'd be why you wouldn't have anything in the in your drug in the system. That's very true. Yeah, that is very true. So. So that kind of seems like evidence that kind of backs up all of the, you know, experts and their beliefs. But, you know, like I said, she did have a lot of people who believed her and, you know, a lot of weird evidence that seems like it would fall more in her favor than it would not. I don't know. And the just, fact the only that thing, the only thing that's got me hung up is how she tied her hands. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of things, in my opinion, that are very strange. The fact that there's still like you know, people graffitiing or someone graffitiing where she was found dead. Like, 
of course that could just be, you know, local kids trying to prank people. You know, people do really fucked up things like that sometimes. You but know what? Oh no, never mind. That couldn't What? I thought, you know, what if she did the spray painting? She t- you know, takes a bunch of the drugs. She ties herself up. She lays down on the grass on her side. She doesn't die. Nobody finds her, right? Mm-hmm. She's like, well, fuck. That didn't work, right? So she takes another handful or two of the drugs and another big shot of the morphine and just lays back down and just tries to, like, waits. Yeah, but she couldn't have shot herself up with the morphine because there was no syringe found in the area. So if she shot herself up with the morphine, that would have had to have happened away from the area. But it is possible that she took more pills, took more morphine, you know, pills or more fluorazepam or diazepam pills. She might have gotten rid of the syringe already and just sucked down the rest of the bottle of the morphine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could drink a bottle of morphine. Yeah. That's that's very possible. Um, and it won't it won't get you that crazy crazy, right? But then you get all those all those uh, tranquilizers in you. Well, she would have also had to if it was liquid in liquid form, and she drank it. There was no vials or anything found around her. So throw it. Yeah, I mean, that's why I I think. Well, the cops just don't find it. I mean, it's been six days. Yeah, I agree. It's very it's possible that it just is gone or it, it was there and it's now buried kind of underneath grass and stuff. But the the thing that gets me is a the fact that she's, you know, hogtied the way that she is. B, obviously the stuff about people thinking she may have been moved is strange, but um I don't know if everyone agrees on what Ozzy Caban said. But the thing that gets me is the fact that the she had 10 times the lethal dose in her. I know that as, you know, if she's an addict, yeah, what's a lethal her dose? tolerance is going to be much higher than <laughs> yeah. the average they said that about Kurt you know, Cobain person. Too. So I don't know how well that would apply to her, it but it seems like 10 times, the, 10 times the lethal dose of anything seems like enough to kill someone even with a super high tolerance it seems like it would at least uh, but on. i mean a lethal a lethal dose well i don't want to get into it yeah yeah a lethal dose to me right now is a lot different to a lethal dose of someone who is using opiates on a regular basis oh yeah absolutely especially with morphine like with things like like fentanyl just because it's such different, a but- small amount that you need to overdose it's kind of it's harder to measure it out yeah but, but with, with morphine no, you need a lot to overdose I mean, not even not, what you're saying isn't true though because a lethal dose is a lethal dose like it's still a, a, an amount of micrograms right it's so measuring it out is measuring it out so i mean it's harder to do it because it's in on a street drug but if you have pharmaceutical grade fentanyl you can measure it out so it's still a measured amount Yes, of course. You're talking about using illicit street drugs. That's different. But like if you can measure the drug, there is a a line that is the lethal dose. But when you have tolerance built up, that's what tolerance is. Yeah, of course. What I meant was because you need a smaller amount to overdose, 
it can be hard if you're just using your eyes to like sure. pinpoint the amount that you need. That's all I was saying. Yes, yes, yes. With morphine, it's much more obvious because you need so much yeah. to overdose. So it just that that part of it, I think I feel like it, it is possible, I guess, for her to have pulled this off in some way. It's just why drinking it makes sense to me. Like, cause like getting that amount of liquid into your body. It also gives you time to tie yourself I'll tie off. yourself. Yeah. Plus she's practiced at that. Right. She's very practiced at it. And I think the part that you mentioned, the fact that she has expertise from sailing is very important as well. So she knows how to tie knots and she's tied herself okay, up well, many times. Mystery solved. Well, I don't know about that, but no, obviously not. It's it's such a crazy story. Oh, sorry, I, I feel really bad for her either way. It, I do too. There's something very, very wrong. And it's very sad that she had to live her life in either such fear of some external thing or person or to have to live in fear of herself. Yes. And... I I no longer um, believe that it was the doctor. The only way that it would make sense to me that it was the doctor is if, because towards the end, after she starts accusing him a lot, yeah. he gets very angry, very mad, and he feels like she is ruining his reputation. Yeah. I could see him killing her out of frustration and then and then staging the scene to make it look like yeah but still he would have had to kill her from like an overdose so never mind yeah it, but i mean I maybe mean, he did kill her right it, it could be but maybe he killed her but i'm not talking about that i'm talking about the whole thing right yeah. him. i don't think i don't think he did the whole thing yeah like i don't think uh, i mean i don't also don't think he killed her but like, I also don't think he killed two people on a boat on right. an island. Like, right. I don't like Mr. You know, Dr. Makepeace is probably not Dr. Make a dead woman. Like I said earlier. Yeah. You know, probably not. Yeah. Like that. You know, this story has been a roller coaster. What a tragedy, man. <laughs> I didn't expect this going in. Gabby, you're a hell of a storyteller. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for being here tonight, listening to this story with us. Yes, thank you all so, so much for listening to all of this. I would love to hear your thoughts. And like I said, TikTok is Dark Origins Pod and Instagram is Dark Origins Podcast. So, And Gmail is darkoriginspod at gmail.com. Yes. So if you want to talk to us about this or anything else, please feel free to reach out on any of those platforms and give us some suggestions of things you'd like to hear about. Tell us how your week's going, anything at all. Yeah. I mean, we respond to every email that we get. We respond to all the comments and it's just us. You know, it's not going to be one of our team because we are the team. <laughs> it's just us here. We do have Onyx. We do have Arthur on security, but they don't have thumbs. They can't type. So they're very frustrated, but it's just us. <laughs> so if you want to talk to us or just tell us that we're awesome or that we suck, please let us know. We'll be happy to, to talk with you. 
Yes, yes. And if for any reason we don't respond, it's probably because I've accidentally missed it or something like that. Not going to happen. It's possible. So I don't want someone to think that we didn't respond because we don't care. That's why I'm, oh my God. I'm making it very clear that. I would be so upset if somebody thought we didn't care. Me too. Don't that's, even say that. That's why I'm saying You this. don't say that. So we care very much and I'm so grateful for all of you. Thank you all so much for listening to all of this. And I love you all so much and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.